my company is actually Sprint Agile. So people think, well, what is, is he running or what's he doing? <laughs> Unlike, you know, relay racing, how people run and pass the baton to the next person and then that person passes the baton to the next person. We want our projects to be executed like Scrum in rugby, not like relay racing. Because in relay racing, you have clear boundaries and phase gates where you go through various phases of your project. But what you really want is like a huddle where it's messy and you may not know what's happening from the outside, but the team is collaborating and there is a lot of skill. There is a lot of little subtle movements in a scrum that could really change the game of the rugby and the outcome of the game. And together they're inching towards their goal slowly and slowly. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, I speak with the Taekwondo world champion, agile and leadership coach, and a person with a passion for emotional intelligence. He studied a bachelor's and master's in information technology from Monash University and a professional leadership program from Motivation Matters. His career has included IT software and engineering roles with companies such as Oracle and Intrepid Travel, and has been an agile coach and trainer for companies like ANZ and MBN Australia. Now, he is the founder and CEO of Sprint Agile and is an agile coach for IOOF Holdings. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to the author of The Wise Enterprise, a systems thinker, and a man who loves trying new languages and technologies. Arash Arabi. Arash, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Craig. What an introduction. I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you've had, a, you've had a great life and career so far. I'm really looking forward to exploring into your mind and, and the things that you do today. I'm very curious, you know, where did you grow up and what was life like for you as a child? So I am originally from Iran. I was born in Iran and grew up in Iran. Life as a child was pretty fun, you know, like it is for most children, uh, not all, but a lot of children. Um, when I was a child, like I grew up, I was born when there was a war in Iran between Iran and, and Iraq. So I think probably up until I was, I can't remember, I was really young, like maybe four or five years old that the war ended. And all I can remember from the war is, you know, when we had the siren go off because the planes were coming to bomb and the family, we would all go to the bunkers underground. I would, I just remember really fun times with the family together in a cozy space because I couldn't understand war. I couldn't understand warming, uh, like bombing and things like that. But what I could understand was people getting together and having, you know, in a cozy place and, uh, uh, well, sitting together in a very compact space. So I, it was kind of a game for me when I was a child. 
So it wasn't, I can't remember being scared. I can all, all, only remember being, you know, enjoying it. But again, I was too, too little to understand these things. It would have probably been very scary for my parents and the older people there. Um, interesting, yeah, so. in- interesting insight there. Um, you know, most people, when they talk about war and bombings and, and going into shelters, they talk about the fear and, um, and then obviously once it's over, then getting out and carrying on with the normal life. So I'm curious just to go into that a little bit further. You know, for you, you were obviously very young, but was it the environment that everyone else created where it felt like fun? So, so they tried to just take you away from what was really happening? I think so. That, that potentially would have contributed because if there was fear in their eyes, if they were exhibiting, uh, you know, um, emotions like fear or stress, a child would easily pick those up and would feel stressed and um, uh, feel afraid as well. I think, yeah, that would have probably been the case. And also, you know, being a huge city, we never had any bombs or anything drop close to our place. So uh, I didn't experience those loud noises or anything like that personally. And uh, yeah, probably that would have contributed. And just, you know, being a big family and they caring about children and things like that, probably they created a safe environment uh, for me to feel that. But that was mostly the first few years of my life. After the war ended, things changed quite a lot. Uh, you know, things started getting better and the economy got better and uh, things like that. Yeah, fantastic. And and so for, for you, you know, while you're growing up, you know, you talk about a big family there. So who did you really admire and look up to as a child? Oh, <laughs> there's so many of them. Of course, my mom and dad and grandpa, like grandparents, my uncles. So my grandpa, I think I'm really influenced a lot by my grandpa and one of my uncles. Uh, my grandpa used to tell us stories all the time, you know, various stories from uh the Bible, from the Quran, from the uh, old uh, old authors and poets and mythological stories, all sorts of stories. And one of my uncles was really into science, so he would tell me scientific things. He would read scientific magazines and you know tell those things in a child's language I, that really connected with me. And of course, you know, my mom and dad, they definitely had a big influence on me as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so as a child, we all dream about things about what we're going to do when we get older and things like that. And you, what did you find yourself being captivated in and dreaming about, you know, during those years? That, yeah, that's funny because when I was really little, people asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say three things. I want to be a diver, like a scuba diver. I want to be a magician and I also want to be a husband. <laughs> <laughs> but then I was very little at that time. When I got a little bit older, you know, I would change my mind all the time every year. You know, this year I want to be a pilot. Next year I want to be a scientist. Next year I want to be something else. But then when I got into like 12 years old, you know, those, those teenage years, uh, I really liked to become a teacher. And I think that was what really captivated me and uh, inspired me to be. Yeah. And, and as a coach now, obviously, that teaching's really come through in, in that aspect. So that's really cool to hear. 
and that was you know one of the drives behind my book actually uh over a year ago i was you know when i started my company and everything company was going really well for a few years and i felt a little bit of oh what's next what's what's my role in this universe you know this is company there's all the financial things which are going well there's all these works that i'm doing but i was feeling that's not actually you know the main goal of my life and i want to do more and things like that so i did a little bit of um, retreat strategizing with my wife and we discussed this question what would you do if you had all the time and all the money in the world and uh, after thinking about it for a while I remember, yeah, it's teaching. That's it. And I remember that that's what I wanted to be as well. But when I was a kid, I was thinking teaching in a school. But now it's the same thing. But like in my company, I do the coaching and I run courses. So I am actually fulfilling what I really wanted to be, like my destiny and everything. And that also inspired me to put a bit more energy and momentum behind the book to get it off the ground because I thought with that I could maybe reach a larger audience and hopefully teach and coach a larger, broader audience. Beautiful. And we'll talk about a little bit more about your book a bit later on in the show as well. We, we spoke in the introduction that you're a world Taekwondo champion. So was Taekwondo a big part of your childhood in Iran as well, or did it come later on in your life? Not really. No, it came a few years ago only. So I, um, always wanted and liked martial arts but when i was ch- when i was a child i was a bit afraid of it because you know when I, my friends were talking about it they would say uh it's tough and you know there's conditioning and you got to get hit and things like that and i was a bit afraid of it even though i liked it a lot so i did all sorts of other sports especially things like mountain climbing rock climbing uh you know things to do with nature, mostly skiing and things like that. Uh, but never did any martial arts in Iran when I was a child. Uh, I only started Taekwondo a few years ago. And um, one of my friends, uh, he is a Taekwondo black belt. And he told me that, well, your body is really good for it. And you like it. And you've been doing, I, I've been doing a little bit of kickboxing as well before. And he's saying you've been doing kickboxing and things like that. So you should try Taekwondo. And I said, okay. And he was moving into Melbourne from Brisbane. And he told me, hey, I'm going to this uh, dojo, dojang. Would you like to join join me there? I said, yeah, sure. I want to do it all the time. Let's do it together. And I signed up. And uh, I realized uh, when I signed up, it was in, I think, 2017 or 18. And then there was, uh, as soon as I signed up, they told us that there is going to be a world championship in Australia in about a year and a half. It's a great opportunity. And I thought, well, that's it. I'm going to train for it. (laughs) I'm going to see if I can get it. And trained and uh, did three championships before the world championships, like local, state, and Australia as well. And then had the world championship in 2019. Wow. So your fourth competition, your world championship. Yeah. And, And so... Obviously, to fast-track yourself over a year and a half, you must have put a fair bit of time into training and preparing both the body and the mind to go into that championship. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So I would train three days a week. I would do Taekwondo. Uh, five days a week, I would do just workout. So even before the Taekwondo, I would, after work, when I finished work, I would go to the gym every day. The days that I would do Taekwondo, I would just do one hour of gym, then go to Taekwondo. Otherwise, I would stay at the gym for a bit longer. And uh, then um, I think my superpower, if you want to call it a superpower, is endurance. And that comes not from Taekwondo itself, from everything that I have done throughout my life. You know, all that mountain climbing, rock climbing, dancing, all those uh, sports, especially I would say that mountain climbing, that spirit of let's keep going. Because if you don't keep going, you're in the middle of nowhere, you got to reach your destination. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. And uh, that was my competitive advantage with my other peers when I was doing Taekwondo because I would keep going and keep going and keep going. But everyone else was uh, tired and that's how I would, you know, how I would win most of the fights basically as well. Mm. Full power, full speed up until the end. And that's the key. It's not about having every skill in the book. It's around understanding what your strengths are and using them to your advantage, uh, which is which is really cool. And so through that period of training, preparing for Taekwondo, then winning a world championship, what did, what lessons or what things did you learn about yourself that you found have been really effective in the business world? Ah, oh, translate them to business. Hmm. Quite a lot of them, actually. Some of them... Uh... Some of them, uh, I can tell you now, it's, so I think they are transferable skills that you learn from your uh, workout, especially if you're doing a sport like Taekwondo that you can bring to your career life as well. And while I was going through this Taekwondo training, I was also going through uh, emotional intelligence training. And it's interesting. I was having a conversation with my coach, uh, which I'm going to share with you now. And that's, I was talking to him after, I, it's really funny. After I won the championship, uh, I wasn't feeling happy. And um, I was talking with my coach about this, my emotional intelligence coach. And talking to him about what, it's unusual, you know, I have won this. This is a great thing. Why am I not happy? And he kind of digged a little bit deeper in me. And, oh, so this is how it goes. So I was telling him that, you know how in the Asian movies, like Karate Kid and all those uh, movies, there's this old Asian master and he said, well, the real enemy is in within. You have to defeat the enemy within so that you can defeat the enemy outside. And I was saying, well, I couldn't defeat the enemy within because I was stressed. I wasn't able to use my skills to the best of my abilities because I had all these tricks up my sleeve that I could, you know, in the finals, in the championship finals, I would have easily been able to defeat the uh, other person, which was, by the way, from New Zealand as well. And uh, I couldn't. And that fight dragged on for a very long time and it went to golden point so typically fights are over within less than five minutes ours was over 10 minutes uh-huh. and after that i was unhappy with myself that i couldn't use all those things that i've practiced 
because I couldn't defeat the enemy within and I couldn't really um, take care of my anxiety so that I can be at my best performance. And then my coach was telling me, well, that's absolutely why, that's exactly the answer why you are not happy now. Because even though that you won the enemy outside, you didn't win the enemy within. And that was your real game. So that made me realize that I am doing similar things at work as well all the time. You know, even though outside you may do certain things or you may go to meetings or things may look good or they may look bad. It's really what makes you satisfied internally that really counts. And that helped me focus internally. And once you focus internally at what really makes you happy, then the external stuff just kind of works itself out automatically. Great insights. I think that's a great lesson for everyone too, you know, in, in whether in their working life or home life, etc. You know, it's not about getting the external accolades. It's all about whether you can satisfy your internal drive and your motivation and, and your new passions as well. So yeah, it's fantastic. Absolutely. I like, like it. So, so moving on from there, you know, what was your catalyst to studying it and becoming a, a program manager and software engineer? Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, I, when I was in Iran, I studied mathematics. I went to the uni and I was a big math fanatic. I loved math. And I did pure mathematics. So this is just like set theory and topology and weird things in the clouds. And I knew that there is no career for that. So then my family moved to Singapore and I moved with them to Singapore and, my, and I had to you know, switch university basically. I left my university in Iran after two years, went to Singapore and I had to start again. So my dad told me, hey, why don't you do IT? It's got a lot of math in it, and you're probably going to get a job with that as well, unlike mathematics. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll do, I'll do IT. And I was a bit older and wiser and, you know, was thinking a bit more practical as well. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll study computer software engineering and uh, computer science. So I did that in Singapore and then, then came to Australia, got a diploma in Singapore, came to Australia, did my bachelor's and master's here at Monash. And uh, really liked computer programming, so got into programming and did really good work in programming, really enjoyed my time, and gradually moved to various other positions in the organization, tried uh, solution architecture, agile coach, scrum master, and then I realized, well, I have always been immersed in technology and work with technology people. But a successful person needs to be able to understand everyone, not just technology people. So I did a bit of a switch and pivot and moved to product ownership. So I wanted to work with business people and work a bit on products as well. So I did a did some time as a product owner in Oracle. And then uh, after almost a year there, uh, went back to coaching, agile coaching, but this time not just within the technology space because I had the business knowledge and product knowledge as well. So it was really coaching, enterprise coaching uh, and helping organization as a whole become more agile and respond to change quickly. Yeah, cool. I think that's, I think that's good for people to understand because not everyone will know what an agile coach is. So if you want to dive into what agile means 
so all our listeners have a great understanding of that. Absolutely. So anyone outside the IT or corporate environment would probably think, oh, Agile coach, is this guy training dogs or is he, <laughs> <laughs> is it like agility for dogs or is he like an athletic uh, person or something? But yeah, Agile coach, Agile is a mindset that we talk in um, organizations and corporate environment. It's a mindset of the business and the technology having the capability to change direction quickly. So that being nimble and being agile, basically. Today's uh, things that are happening, you see technology is changing so fast, the markets are changing so fast, the climate and environment is changing so fast. And now we have COVID, like everything is changing so fast. And an organization to be successful, they need to be able to change fast as well. So then it initially, this agile mentality came out of IT and technology space because you know those programs in IT and technology needed to be really fast because the technology was changing so fast. But now it's everything. It's the entire business that needs to be fast and agile. Yeah, brilliant. And you talked about um, the Scrum. The Scrum. Um, yes. And, and so what, what, how does that work with, you know, you, got, you talk about being agile and agile coach and things like that. So what does the Scrum Master do? Yes, perfect. You know, it's funny that in the agile um, industry, there's a lot of sports metaphors. So you talk about agile and then Scrum and then sprints and all sorts of sport words. My company is actually Sprint Agile. So people think, well, was it? is he running or <laughs> what's he doing? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Scrum is a framework. Uh, that is an agile framework, basically. And the word comes from Scrum in rugby. And basically the idea is unlike, you know, relay racing, how people run and pass the baton to the next person and then that person passes the baton to the next person, we want our projects to be executed like Scrum in rugby, not like relay racing. Because in relay racing, you have clear boundaries and phase gates where you go through various phases of your project. But what you really want is like a huddle where it's messy and you may not know what's happening from the outside, but the team is collaborating and there is a lot of skill. There is a lot of little subtle movements in the scrum that could really change the game of the rugby and the outcome of the game. And together they're inching towards their goal slowly and slowly. So that's where the name scrum comes from. And it's actually a framework with lots of ceremonies and various uh, artifacts and roles and meetings with their agenda and things like that. And it's actually the most popular agile framework in the world with like, I think 80% of uh, companies who practice agile using Scrum. One of the roles in Scrum is called the Scrum Master. The Scrum Master is the master in Scrum, basically. They know Scrum like the back of their hand. They're really competent in the art of Scrum and they coach the team. So it's similar to the position of Agile coach, but more specific to the Scrum framework and more specific to a single team. So we call a Scrum master a servant leader within their team. They are supposed to remove impediments within the team and facilitate the execution of the work that the team is doing. Very, very good. So recently you have um, authored the book, The Wise Enterprise, where you shape organizations for the age of 
uncertainty. What good timing, um, 2020. Sent a lot of uncertainty right now for a lot of people. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, well, yeah, this COVID situation is a great reminder that we are living in uncertain times. It, in, the, in the lifetime of a human, you know, we have typically very short, uh, human memory has a relatively short time span. So we don't really understand things how like climate change or the changes in the markets or the changes in the technology are actually changing the business environment because, well, on the daily basis, we don't see much change. But when you accumulate that change over years, months, years, or decades, that change is significant. Like compared now your 2020, compared that with 2010, it's an absolutely different era. But what COVID has created is that short-term aspect of it as well, because now people can feel the change on daily basis. They can feel the uncertainty on daily basis. So I think the book now makes a lot more sense, even though it was the original concept even before uh, COVID. The original title was Creating Organizations That Thrive in Uncertainty. But after a few iterations, we landed on that that title. But yeah, it actually ended up great timing because the COVID situation helps people really appreciate the uncertainty that's going on in uh, the world. Of course, you know, COVID's going to end sometime, probably in a few years, maybe worst case in a few decades. But uncertainty is going to be a constant. And things are going to be uncertain and they're going to get probably more uncertain as the rate of change increases. And so do you find those experiences from when you were a child in, in the Iran-Iraq war there, do, do you find that really helps you now when we're in this kind of world of, it's more of an economical war at the moment um, rather than an actual physical war. So is there a lot, is there a lot of things that translate across from from your childhood? That's very insightful. I never thought about it that way, but I think potentially, potentially, because when you look at things, well, something interesting, actually, um, that makes me thinking something very interesting now, because when you things, when you see things like shortages of toilet paper, things like that in Australia, you know, when we had the situation, you don't see things like that in Iran, because people are used to things going wrong. So they don't panic. So they, when things go wrong, it makes people more empathic towards each, each other because maybe they've felt it before and they say, well, maybe I don't buy toilet paper today because someone else may need it even more than me. But potentially because here in Australia, things have been stable for so long, uh, that becomes actually our Achilles heel. And when things become unstable and uncertain, we behave in ways that are not economical in the sense of that, you know, system economic sense, not viable and not to our best interest. Hmm. Yeah, interesting there. So so the book, tell, tell us what the wise enterprise is, you know, all about for you. Absolutely. So the book is about giving people, professionals in organizations, helping them build capabilities 
to make wiser decisions in uncertain times. And to be able to make wise decisions, I think a person as well as an organization, they need four capabilities. These capabilities are systems thinking, emotional intelligence, leadership, and organization transformation. Now let's talk about them one by one. I'm gonna unpack it a little bit. Systems thinking, it's one of my favorite subjects. It actually, I think I call systems thinking the most important thing in the world. So systems thinking in layman's terms, it means someone's capability to connect the dots and see the bigger picture. Because when we're problem solving, typically what we do is analysis. We focus on our subject of interest, but typically the answer doesn't lie within our subject of interest. The answer lies outside the subject of interest. An example of this uh, is from Russell Ackoff, one of the famous six, uh, systems thinkers of the 20th century. He says, for example, if you want to figure out why we drive the car on the left side of the road in Australia and right side of the road in the US, it doesn't matter how much you analyze a steering wheel, your answer is not there. The answer is outside the car, it's in the economy, it's in, it's in the history, it's in the politics and everything that's been going on for hundreds of years in, in those countries. So typically our answers are not in our object of interest and it's in the ecosystem is in the broader ecosystem that our object is operating in. And that's why we call it systems thinking. It's referring to the ecosystem outside of object of interest. And people like Russell Lakoff, people like um, uh, Deming, another famous systems thinker, or uh, my favorite guy, if I can remember his name, the author of uh, The Fifth Discipline. Oh God, I can't remember his name. Uh, these are famous systems thinker, and this is a discipline that has been going on for like seven years or so these days. And they have come up with various tools and techniques that enable people to be better systems thinkers and ask the right questions when problem solving to find the answers. Now I've kind of compiled some of those and added my, added in my own insight, how to make systems thinking second nature so when someone is thinking, problem solving, without having to go away on a whiteboard, having to map the entire system, do causal loop modeling or value stream mapping or all those complex ways of doing systems thinking, how can you think in systems instantly? How can you ask the right questions yourself so you understand the big picture and understand the connections with the big picture? That's systems thinking. Second one, emotional intelligence. Well, emotional intelligence is how to work with people and how to work with yourself. So uh, it is defined as our capability to understand our own emotions, manage our own emotions, control them, understand the emotions of others and influence the emotions of others. It is so very powerful because decision-making and a lot of things that we do on day-to-day -day basis is, is influenced by our emotions. So if you can influence your own emotions, change your own emotions or influence and change the emotions of others, you'll have a lot of power. And that's what 
basically emotional intelligences. There's a lot of great work done by Daniel Goldman. I did training with him. I went through a year of training with, uh, with his company, Goldman AI, to improve my emotional intelligence and really put those practices together again with my own insights and experience and try to come up with a practical advice, you know, a practical set of guidelines that people can use to develop their emotional intelligence, both on themselves, how to influence their own emotions and the emotions of others. The third one would be leadership. Well, leadership is uh, the most obvious one, I would say, that uh, leadership capabilities. Well, first I have to differentiate le leadership from rank or position or being a boss, because that's, a, that's different to leadership. Leadership is a skill. You may not be in a leadership position, but have leadership capabilities and leadership skills. Or you may be in a position of authority and rank, but not have those leadership skills and qualities. So here we're talking about those qualities of leadership in the book and how to set up uh, an inspiring vision, how to mobilize a group of people to move towards that vision, how to influence people to be able to be at their best, create an environment where people can be at their best and do teamwork and things like that. Again, a lot of practical advices. I draw a lot on the work of people like Simon Sinek or David Marquette as well, uh, and add my own insight to it to create a framework on leadership. And then finally, organization transformation. This is a funny one because organizations, well, we think, we tend to think that behavior of people are influenced by their mindset or by, you know, their, whatever they're thinking. But a lot of times that's not the case. The behavior of people are influenced by the organization, by the structure that they're operating in. I'll give you an example. You know, a few years ago in Victoria here, we had a scandal with the Victoria police gaming the breathalyzers. So they would blow into the breathalyzers themselves instead of, you know, standing there at the middle of the night to ask drivers to blow in the breathalyzers to meet their quotas, basically. And I was driving to work and I was listening to radio and there was this morning radio show where the host was grilling the police commissioner and saying, well, who's gonna lose their job over this scandal? And then I was thinking, well, it doesn't matter because whoever else who comes in here will make the exact same mistake. It's not the people, it's the quotas that is causing that behavior, that is promoting that type of behavior. So that's an example of how a system, an organization promotes certain behaviors in people. And in this last chapter, I talk about the capability of how to create a system, an organization that enables people to have the right behaviors that we desire. And there is a change management framework that I introduced, the five-step change management framework, and a few other things that help organizations and people build that capability. Yeah, brilliant. I like those. For a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very good. Very good. And so with, uh, you know, you talk a lot about um, we help move from the opinion-based decision-making to the evidence-based decision-making. Why is that so important? Oh yeah, definitely, because opinion, everyone has a different opinion. And typically what happens is those opinions are formed in a sense on certain evidence, right? It, it, it's, 
how every person perceives the world that forms their opinion, right? Together with their other things like their personality, their upbringing, their motives, their objectives, and, and things like that as well. And when we talk about organization, it's a group of people, and each of them, they have their own personalities, their own upbringing, their own motives, objectives, and all sorts of things. And they shape and influence the opinions of individuals. And we end up in situations where we are, when we're making decisions in organizations, those opinions influence decisions in a way that um, sometimes we go in circles and never make decisions. Sometimes the most strongest voice just influences the decision and the other opinions are not heard. And even sometimes we tend to think that we agree, but we aren't actually agreeing because the words that we are using, they have different meaning to each one of us. So for example, I'm using the word risk in a meeting, but risk means something to me that is different to you because the way that we see, we perceive that work, you know, if I'm a compliance person, I see risk as a certain thing. If I'm an IT person, I see risk as a certain thing. If I'm a product person, I see risk, like innovation person, risk is good, we want to risk. Compliance or legal, no, risk is bad, we want to avoid risk, right? So those same words have different connotations, different meanings to different people. So even when we're agreeing, we are not really agreeing in our decisions, in our discussions. So how can we bring a framework that is more evidence-based so that it's helping us having the right conversations, having the right discussions, and making sure that opinion aspect is removed? Removed is not the right word. Is managed in a way that everyone's opinions are heard, but decisions are made on objective evidence. You bring up a, a great sort of underlying point there that an answer is only as good as the question. Absolutely. And quite often we are asking the wrong questions and thinking we're getting the right answers. And so we need to actually be very strategic around what type of questions at the right times to actually get the, the, the answers that are going to help us solve the problems that we're looking at. Absolutely. On the spot, the question is, why, in meetings, we need to ask ourselves, why are we here? Why are we discussing these things? And really know the purpose and make sure we are on the right page. But that reminds me of 42, right? Do you know 42? No, no. It's Number fine. 42, Douglas Adams. Oh, I love this story. So Douglas Adams, British author of a book, satire book called Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy. And in this book, he talks about, you know, people are building this super computer to answer the ultimate question. That question is, what's the answer to life, universe, and everything? And this supercomputer goes and calculates the answer for a billion years, takes a billion years to find the answer. And then finally, there's a huge celebration and people are celebrating, yeah, we got the answer. We, we will know the answer to life, universe, and everything soon. And then they ask the computer, well, what's the answer? The computer says the answer is 42. People say, what? What? <laughs> What's 42? Then the computer says, well, you ask a stupid question, you get a stupid answer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. Now, obviously, all organizations face many challenges and, and so do people in life in that as well. 
when we look at COVID right now and in, in the in twenty twenty and what it's bought for us, what do you think is the most important challenge that organizations are facing that no one's really talking about? Long term problems with economy, with lockdown and everything. Currently most companies and the government they are in firefighting mode. How do we keep the lights on, right? Some companies are benefiting from the situation. Well, it's good for them. Some companies are in trouble. It's bad for them. But whatever they are doing, mostly they are thinking tactical. They're not thinking strategic. COVID is here, right? We don't know if there's going to be a cure discovered. We don't know if there's going to be a vaccine discovered. They may or may not be. What if we can't find a vaccine? Or what if we find a vaccine, but it doesn't, you know, it's not long lasting or has really terrible side effects or whatever. What, how are we going to cope with that? Has anyone been thinking about 10 years? If COVID remains here for another 10 years, are we going to remain, keep our borders shut for another 10 years? Are we going to keep the lockdown enforced for another 10 years or so? So we need to keep thinking of options in future. And that's pretty much systems thinking, thinking about the things that are outside our immediate focus and think about what other things are out there that could go wrong or could influence our economy, could influence our company. So I think that's the most important missing piece. Yeah, brilliant. I like the answer. Very, very clever. So we've talked a lot around um, the agile and talking about the scrum master, etc. You, you touched a little bit there on, on sprint. So how does the how does Sprint, like you bought Sprint Agile together as the name of your company. Yeah. What does Sprint mean from, uh, not only from an organizational point of view, but also from a human point of view? Absolutely. Now, Sprint has a specific uh, technical meaning in the Agile community. And that is a short period of time where we define a goal for, and we go and deliver that goal. So for example, two weeks, typically most organizations sprint is two weeks. So at the beginning of a sprint, we define what we want to achieve in these two weeks. And then we plan how we're going to achieve it, you know, with the team together. And then we go and execute it. And then at the end of the two weeks, we check, did we achieve it? What did we learn from it? And then reflect, how can we get better in the next two weeks? And that's why we call it sprint because it's short. And the idea is uh, you have short time boxes of planning, delivery, and reflection. And in theory, that could result in exponential growth and exponential getting better in whatever that you're doing. So uh, it's a, I think it's a very valuable uh, method, valuable tool, because it brings great structure to the way we deliver and the way we think and the way we, we reflect. So yeah, that's pretty much Sprint. Brilliant, brilliant. And so, you know, obviously you've, uh, we were talking offline before we, we came on to the podcast around that you've actually taken quite a big break from practicing Taekwondo and you've only recently come back in the last couple of weeks for you, how do you ensure that you manage your energy and performance so that you can uh, lead people and lead teams 
in an effective manner. So not only do you bring your skills, but you turn up and you show up for that person or team. It was a big challenge. So I'm a very active person and I would spend long hours, eight hours, 10 hours a week working out even potentially more before the lockdown. When the lockdown started, I had to keep myself, um, use some real power to keep you know, some workout going on every day and at least go for a half hour run or something. Initially it was okay. And then I started uh, something that I started in the first first month or so, which was really helpful was fasting. So I started fasting and that was bringing a layer of structure again, you know, this is what the time that I'm eating, this is the time that I'm not eating and, you know, stops me from overeating. And it also provides a, like a goal, something that you do, something that you, I had this challenge for myself to do 40 days of, of fasting. So it was like a, you know, like a goal post that I was moving towards and it was a bit of a fun thing to do. And then once that finished, it became really difficult. So, uh, and, you know, that was towards the beginning of the winter, my workout got reduced and my hours was kind of out of whack. And I was feeling quite a lot in a sense of being jet lagged. So uh, my mind wasn't quite fresh. I tried various things. None of them really worked well for me. Uh, so I tried a little bit of practicing music, playing some musical instrument, which is fine. Uh, various works workouts, but you know, my recommendation to people would be keep trying various things. You know, I would try something. It doesn't work. Try it for a few weeks. It's a little bit. Okay. Not bad. Try another thing. A little bit. Okay. Not bad. But then, um, you, I think it was over a month ago that something incredible happened. And I found that there is a place within our five kilometers that is open and it's renting, renting out paddle boards at the oh, beach. Cool. So every weekend <laughs> I would go hire a paddle board, do paddle boarding for an hour and then come back home. And that was, that was a big game changer for me. So I guess my answer would be you got to experiment and keep looking for whatever that works for you. If you're an active person, find something that is, you know, uh, an active, active thing. If you enjoy music, maybe try playing music or something to you know, get that energy from. Brilliant. Brilliant. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Paddleboarding. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I think it was two months ago or so that I yeah did paddleboarding for the first time, and it was great. It was a bit scary at first. You know, I couldn't get the uh, balance right. I was thinking, oh man, I've been doing previously. I've done surfing. I've done skiing. This. This, could be, this is a piece of cake, but it wasn't. <laughs> Took it like two sessions to get get a hang of it. But yeah, it was really good fun. Brilliant. What is the one question that you would love to solve? And it can't be number 42. No, I know. That's cheating. <laughs> so I would love to know, but this is a tough question. 
what's my purpose in this world, right? So my wife says something really interesting. She says, she says that when you have a puzzle, you know, you see how each one of the pieces of puzzles fit perfectly in their position. What we typically do is we try this, oh, it doesn't fit. We try another place, no, it doesn't fit. And you only see few people in the world who have found their place for their piece of puzzle, where it really fits. I would like to find where is my place, where I can fit. Very good. That's a great question. And hopefully you can solve that soon. For you, <laughs> what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Extraordinary life. What's the definition? Well, this is a personal opinion, right? It, it may not be the case for other people, but moving towards something having a sense of achievement and being able to feel growth and getting better at things. Now, actually, that reminds me of something. Uh, Albert Camus, he writes about living an extraordinary life as it was defined by uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. So uh, Albert Camus in his book is quoting uh, Edgar Allan Poe and he says, Joy and extraordinary life is summarized in four things. It's to be creative, do something creative, to live in nature. Let's see if I can remember this. Live in nature, do something creative, to love someone or something. And this is the interesting one, not to be over ambitious. Not to be over ambitious. Not to be, not to be over ambitious. Yeah. Yeah. Arash, you've shared some great insights and some beautiful stories to, to help us connect and relate with as well. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Absolutely. If you want to connect, LinkedIn is the best, best way. I post on a weekly basis, usually two posts per week on LinkedIn. Check out the book. I'm sure you're going to love it. Uh, give me feedback, what you think about it. The book is called The Wise Enterprise, Reshape Your Organization for the Age of Uncertainty. It's available on ebook and paperback on Amazon and your local bookstore as well. And Twitter as well. Uh, but yeah, LinkedIn is the best. Arash, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Um, you know, from your early days where you you grew up in Iran in the war and and just the the environment that people created for you to ensure that you felt safe and kind of exciting even though you didn't really know what was going on in the world to then finding finding your place in IT you know after studying mathematics first and being able to you know really delve into that and you can you can feel that that passion but also your real intellect around this as well and you make and you humanize things. You know, a lot of people um, might talk about IT and technology and things like that, and it just goes above people because they're not used to being in that world. But for you, you make it simple, you make it easy, you take the barriers away, which is fantastic, and I really enjoy that. When you speak around the wise enterprise and the work that you're doing there, it's it's something to me that will you know really helps and shapes people into thinking 
uh, more effectively, you know, from a systems approach and asking, looking at a little bit more evidence-based around what we do and the way we make decisions. And it's all about the questions. The quality of the answer is only going to come from the questions, which I think is fantastic. To, to bring to life the sprint and the agile and the scrum master and just make that easy for people to understand. And, you know, there's so many analogies in life where we bring from another sphere, like we've bought it from the sport world and bringing that into the IT world. And now you're bringing that more into the leadership and, and thinking of the whole person type thing as well. I thank you so much for your time today. You're um, an amazing person doing some incredible things. And I look forward to you know, hearing people's reviews of the Wise Enterprise. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Craig. It was an absolute pleasure to be on your show. Definitely enjoyed the conversation. And thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to a very insightful conversation with Arash Arabi. Defeat the enemy within on the Active CEO podcast. Now, I was speaking with our team today from Speakers Institute Corporate around the importance of human centricity. And I just want to share a little bit of an excerpt from our DNA, which is Speakers Institute Corporate Brand Guidelines. You know, to us, great leadership means enabling effective communication and decision making during every human touchpoint. This is why leaders' needs, together with our brand DNA, are at the center of every conversation. Our DNA is a playbook on how we communicate our brand visually, verbally, tonality, and physiologically. With our company's growth and inspiring direction, we need a brand identity that is efficient to use, connected to our sister company, Speakers Institute, flexible across platforms, and has global consistency. Our clients, are the driving force behind our brand. So it is key that you get to know them too. Everything we do is focused on fostering valuable human-centered relationships, striving for excellence and raising the levels of professionalism. So my question to you is, what is your DNA? And how can you be more human-centric in the work that you do? If you need help exploring your DNA and bringing it to life and, and seeing ways that you can make your work more human-centric, then please reach out and contact me at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. And together, we can look at how you can shift your DNA so it's more human-centric. Thank you very much for listening today. I am Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.